While taking care of the sheep, he risks his life multiple times to protect them from bears and lions. Then one day he's told that he's going to be king, but the evil king that is the current king finds out, and this man is forced to flee and live the life of an outlaw for years. During that time, his best friend's dad tries to personally kill him multiple times. As time goes on and the man gets older, a number of people he thought he could rely on betray him to his enemies. He and his friends face starvation. He has to go live with foreign enemies in order to get away from enemies in his own country. Later, he has a baby that dies as a result of his own sin. One of his children commits unspeakable sin against his family. Another one of his children takes revenge and murders that child before leading a rebellion to try to take the kingdom from him. Then one of his generals murders that child. Later, his whole country is struck with a plague as a result of his sin. And when he's on his deathbed, yet another child tries to go behind his back and take the kingdom from him. And throughout all of that, he has to fight wars against enemies, lead fickle people, and deal with general animosity in his own family. Now, if all of that happened to you, what would your response be? What would your feelings be? How would you respond? I got a thumbs, thumbs down back there. <laughs> Can any of you agree with Josiah? Probably, yeah. And I'm sure you can probably guess who that man is. Anyone help me out? King David. King David, yes. Uh, and he is the author of Psalm 16, the, the passage that we're going to be studying today. So, be studying today. So, take a look at, at Psalm 16. Even though David has one of, or had, one of the hardest lives ever written about, right? I mean, we could think about maybe Job, um, but, but David is right up there with the number of trials mentioned in his life. But he's going to be a model for us today of a trust in God that doesn't depend on our circumstances. And he's also going to remind us of the rewards that belong to the person that trusts in God. So let's read Psalm 16. Read along with me as we start in Psalm 16, verse 1. It says, uh, sorry, let me start at the very beginning. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I will not pour out their libations of blood nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. All right, so the first verse, uh, and by the way, I I know you guys probably know this, but uh, the little uh, script above verse 1 that's over a, a lot of psalms, that's, that's also part of the text. That's part of the original text. So the miktam of David, we know that this is written by David. He's the author. Um, but look at, at verse 1. That first verse, preserve me, O God, is David's only request in the whole psalm. And it gives us the theme for the rest of the psalm. For preserve me is the request. And what's his reason for asking God to preserve him, given that he gives in the second half of the verse? for I take refuge in you. Preserve me, for I take refuge in you. And that that statement, I take refuge in you, that's the first of two main statements of trusting God that David gives us in this psalm. I take refuge in you. So we don't know exactly when in David's life he wrote this psalm. It doesn't doesn't tell us. Sometimes we're given that, um, but, but in this particular psalm, we don't know. But what we do know is he felt like he needed to be preserved, right? There was some sort of trial, some sort of difficult circumstance that he turned to God and needed preservation from. And his response is to trust in God. In verses 2 through 4, we'll see that he's trusting in God's goodness. So that's the first blank in your outline if you have one. Trust in God's goodness. And how does he do that? Letter A, we can see that he delights in God. <clears throat> so trust in God's goodness, delight in God. He says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. So we have to notice, first of all, that there are two different lords going on here. I know some of you guys know this, but if you don't, um, t- take a look. The, the f- there's one Lord that, if you ha- depending on your translation, it might be all caps. I said to the Lord, all caps. Does anyone know what that means? Yeah, Elias. It's referring to God. Referring to God, yeah. In, in what way? Does anyone know what the, what the meaning behind that, that Lord word is? Yeah. It's Yahweh. Yeah, that's, that's God's personal name. And then what about the other one? What does, what does Lord uh, with, with lowercase o-r-d mean? Anyone? Yeah. Referring to earthly rulers. Yeah, a ruler, a master. Um, that, that would be the, the, the general meaning. So David here, if, if we're going to kind of reword this, he's saying, <clears throat> I said to Yahweh, you are my master. I said to Yahweh, you are my master. And by calling God his master, David is saying that he's submitting fully to him. He's, the, he's probably, by this point, right, we don't know, but probably the king of the entire nation of Israel and yet he's submitting himself, he's putting himself in a, in a position of humility and calling God his master. And then what does he say? You are my Lord, you are my master, I have no good besides you. Literally, it says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. So in other words, there's no other good. David is saying any good he's ever experienced, whether through being king or through his wealth, or through the blessings on his family, or even the simple pleasures of life like good tasting food or playing music, which we know that David did. All of those things, David says, are from God. I have no good apart from you. 
And if you've read the book of James, that sounds familiar, right? What, is, what does James say about good gifts? Someone other than Elias. Yeah. They're, they're a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, right? But David isn't just basking in his blessings and in the ease of life. He's not just saying, man, life is so great. I have so much good in my life. It's so easy. Remember, his life was full of difficult circumstances from youth all the way until his deathbed. <clears throat> and remember, he opened the psalm by asking God to preserve him. It was a request that he needed preservation. But David also recognizes that also when life is easy, but especially when life is difficult, we need to remind ourselves of God's goodness. There's nowhere, there's nobody else to run to. Nothing else gives relief in difficult times. God is good and does good, Psalm 119 says, and so David delights in God. Stop for a moment and, and ask yourself, can you say with David, I have no good besides God? When your life is going as you planned, do you recognize that there's no good that you've experienced apart from him? Or on the flip side, when your life is going all wrong, can you say, can you be confident that, that God is good and does good even in the midst of your difficult circumstances, even sometimes with your difficult circumstances? That's a true sign of Christian maturity when your theology of God is not affected by your day-to-day -day circumstances. And it wasn't for David. He delighted in God. The second way in which, God, or in which David trusts in God's goodness is by his associations, his friends. He delights in God, and then he delights in God's people. That is the next point in your outline. Delight in God's people. Verse 3. David says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Saints here isn't talking about something mystical. It's not angels. It's not some sort of special super-Christian like that term is used in Catholicism. What's it talking about? Who are, who are saints? Yeah? Believers. Believers. God's people. I kind of gave that away in the, in the blanks, didn't I? David's saying that he delights in God's people. He enjoys being with other people who love and obey God. That is a natural and necessary symptom of delighting in God, right? We see that all throughout Scripture. Uh, if you love God, you'll love his people. What does 1 John 4 say? Actually, all throughout 1 John, but, but specifically in 1 John 4, John says, if anyone hates his brother, who he can see, what? He's not of God. He, can't, he can't love God who he doesn't see, Right? They, they must go together. If you love God, you love people. If you don't love people, you don't love God. <clears throat> and that's not always easy, is it? To love people. <laughs> Other believers aren't always reliable. They're not always easy to get along with. They'll disappoint us. They'll sin against us. They'll let us down. We know a number of David's acquaintances, friends, counselors, even his own wife and kids sinned personally against him. But still, David says he delights in the saints, in God's people. And in contrast to delighting in God and in God's people, David says in verse 4 what he does not delight in. Letter C in your outline, despise idols. Verse 4, David says, 
The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I will not pour out their libations of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Literally, the, the language here, it says, the sorrows of those who have hastened to another or who have hurried to another. Um, it, even that, that word God, it might be in italics in your translation. It's, it's not in the original. There's no word for God there. It just says, hasten to another. David's talking about people who run when difficult things come. And they don't run to Yahweh, the true God, Right? They don't delight in him. They hurry, they, they run, they skedaddle to another god, a false god, an idol. And what does David say will happen to those people who serve another god? Their sorrows are going to multiply. They're spending all this time and effort uh, uh, bartering, hurrying, um, saving up to serve another god, and the only thing that they're going to accumulate is sorrow, is sadness. So David says he's not going to participate in idol worship. Pouring out a libation was a, a pagan practice. Um, we don't really do that today, but, but it was a pagan practice from that time where they might take a cup or a pitcher of some sort of liquid, oil, wine, uh, could be even blood, and pour it out as an offering to worship idols. And David says he won't participate in that idol worship and he doesn't stop there. He says he won't even take the names of the idols on, on his lips. He won't even say them. He won't worship them. He won't swear by them. He won't even name them. Instead, David says he delights in God. He delights in God's people. And he despises idols that people worship in the place of God. And that's, that's a concept that we see all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, when you see the, the imperatives to put on you're always putting something off as you put something on, or vice versa. When you put off, you're always putting something on in response. So David is saying, while I pursue God and while I love his people, I'm going to put off idol worship. Again, ask yourself, can you say the same? Do you delight in God's people? When you look around and you see all that the world has to offer, do you choose to associate with the lowly, persecuted, sometimes disappointing smelly people of God? <laughs> or do you gravitate toward your fellow students who love God and who love reading their Bibles and who are growing in their faith? Are those the people you want to be around? Or would you rather chase what the world promises, trying to find satisfaction in video games, in pornography, in money, in popularity, in a fast car that impresses your friends maybe, in a scholarship to a prestigious college? Idols can take any any number of forms in our lives. But when things get difficult, do you trust in God's goodness and want to associate with his people? Or do you want to run to another God that you've created? David says he won't even name those things because that's how much attention an idol deserves. So David trusts in God's goodness. And then he tells us in verses 5 and 6 why he trusts God and the reason is because there's a benefit, there's a reward. Number two on your outline, a beautiful inheritance. The reward is a beautiful inheritance. Letter A, their inheritance is God. Do you guys know what an inheritance is? Anyone familiar with an inheritance? 
Maybe someone has inherited something. Yeah, what's an inheritance? Yeah, yeah, usually when someone, someone dies, yeah, you, you might end up with their stuff, <laughs> right? Uh, it's, it's usually money or real estate, real estate or some other kind of stuff when somebody dies. But David here is going to talk about a different type of inheritance. Not getting a bunch of money or stuff. He's talking about the spiritual inheritance that he gets because he trusts in God. Let's look at it in verse 5. First part of the inheritance that David brings up at the beginning of verse 5, when he says, the Lord, remember that's Yahweh, all caps, the Lord Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Your translation might say, the Lord is my chosen portion, which um, that's not really the best translation because that puts the emphasis on David's choosing. Um, and and in really in the Hebrew, the 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 words for chosen and portion, or you might say the portion of my inheritance, those two words are just two different words for portion. So, so literally it, it would say, Yahweh is my portion, portion, and my cup. And that word portion, another, another thing about that word portion is it can have two meanings. On the one hand, it can mean a reward, an inheritance, just like we were talking about. Like the tribes of Israel were given when they first entered the land of Canaan. Each of the tribes was given a specific portion and that's what belonged to that tribe. On the other hand, the word portion can mean physical sustenance, like a meal. And we see that in scripture when people were given specific portions of an animal to eat. So some people, uh, some people go back and forth. What does it mean? What, is, what does the word portion here mean? I think the Holy Spirit through David intended to use this word on purpose because it has both meanings. Because David is saying that God is both his portion like an inheritance and God is like his portion like the sustenance that comes from a meal. And then he says, the Lord is his cup. Yahweh is my cup. Now that goes along with the idea of sustenance, right? That the Lord sustains David like a portion of food and a cup of something to drink. And in fact, the very food that David ate and the drink that David drank came from God, the one who provided it daily. We can be sure of that. But this is cool. It also contrasts, if you look back up at verse 4, the libations of blood that he mentioned. Because instead of pouring out a cup of blood in idol worship, David gets to drink the cup of the Lord. So for those who trust God, their inheritance is God. And we see next that their inheritance is sure. Their inheritance is God. Their inheritance is sure. Look at the end of verse 5. David continues with that inheritance vocabulary and he says, you support my lot. That word lot is another word that was used when the Israelite tribes were given their inheritance. But you can also think of the phrase, that's my lot in life, right? We use that in English today. Just my lot in life. What does that mean? My lot in life. Anyone know? Elias? The way things are meant to be. The way things are meant to be, yeah. Kind of my destiny, um, my, my future, uh, just the way things are going to happen uh, to me. Um, so David has mentioned what his inheritance is. His inheritance is God himself. But what, what now does he say about his inheritance? 
He says his inheritance is not only God, but it's supported by God. It's sure. He doesn't have to hire a lawyer to go prove his claim. Sorry, Hudson. (laughs) He doesn't have to hire a lawyer to go prove his claim to his inheritance because just as sure as he knows that God is good, David knows that God is the one who will secure his inheritance. So David's inheritance is God. David's inheritance is sure. And now we see point C, it's pleasant. Their inheritance is pleasant. Letter C in your outline. In verse 6, David says, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. He says, The lines have fallen to him in pleasant places. Yet again, David is using this tribal allotment language. After Israel came into the land of Canaan, the boundary lines were drawn to designate where one tribe's land ended and where the next, next tribe's land started. And some of the tribes made out a little bit better than the others, right? Uh, the lines favored some tribes more than others. But David says when it comes to his inheritance, the lines have fallen to him in pleasant places. It's, it's pleasant. It's, it's beautiful. And his, inherit, his, his heritage is beautiful to him. Whatever he experienced in his present life, as well as the future inheritance that he was looking forward to, David said it was beautiful. What I've been given, both to experience in this life, in the midst of all his difficulties, and what I'm looking forward to, that's beautiful to me. But hold on. Remember who we're talking about. This is David. He suffered in his friendships and in his family and with his army generals and even from his own sin. It might make more sense to us to read these words from Solomon or someone with a quote-unquote easy life like that. But David says it doesn't matter how difficult your life is. It doesn't matter how bad your circumstances are because if you trust God, you have a beautiful inheritance. And that's because your inheritance is God. If you're a believer today and you're sitting in this room, how often do you consider your beautiful inheritance that you have, both in this life and in the life to come. Do you? Are you content with your current circumstances? Do you value inheriting God above inheriting money or possessions when your parents or grandparents pass away? How often do you look forward to the inheritance you have coming in the future? It's a beautiful inheritance, but it's inheritance that's reserved only for those who trust in Yahweh, who trust in the Lord. So David trusts in God's goodness, and he has a beautiful inheritance. And now point three in your outline, he trusts in God's counsel. And letter A is going to be seek wisdom in the day. Seek wisdom from God in the day. In verse seven, David says, I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. How does God counsel us today? Through his word. Yeah. How did God counsel his people back then? Prophets? Yeah. What were the prophets saying? They were speaking his word. The the answer is the same, right? 
God counsels us today through his word. God counseled David 3,000 years ago through his word, through prophets, through the law. David read God's word. David sought wisdom from God's word with a conscious, daily, humble attitude that recognized God as the source of wisdom. Remember, this wasn't always done, but it was prescribed in the law that the king of Israel was supposed to write and copy his own, his own copy of the law. And, and that was to help him remember that he is the, the king of a nation that, that has a higher law than him, and it was also supposed to help him remember. Because if you write down, I, I'm sure, well, maybe not all of you, but, but I know when I was a kid, and uh, if, I, if I maybe had a bad attitude or, or had to, uh, I don't know, I sinned in some way. I had to sometimes copy a specific sentence like 200 times. And, and that helps you remember it, right? Because you don't want to do that again. And also you wrote it 200 times, so your hand connected to your brain is like, I remember that time when I said I don't have to have a bad attitude, or don't have a bad attitude. So for David, he had written uh, and, and had his copy of God's word. And he studied it. And he recognized that God is the source of wisdom in his word. Remember what James 1 says about wisdom? Anyone? And asking for wisdom? It says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and what? He'll give it to him. It'll be given to him, right? So David trusts in God's counsel by seeking wisdom daily in his word. And he also, next point in your outline, seeks wisdom in the night. Look at the second half of verse 7. David says, Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. This is a fun verse. Because, does anyone have a different translation of that? Uh, Mine says, my mind instructs me in the night. But anyone else? Yeah, Josiah. Your heart? So, yeah. So heart, mind, anyone else have something different? So the the Hebrew word is not either of those. It's not heart or mind. It's kidneys. My kidneys instruct me in the night, David says. Now, what in the world does that mean? My kidneys instruct me in the night. Did did David's kidneys wake him up at night and, and teach him about God's word and then tell him to go back to sleep? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. The kidneys are for, for the inner man, your inner self. That's the same word that you'll read when you read Psalm 139 that says, God wove my inward parts. Inward parts, that's the kidneys word. <clears throat> the idea here is that David knows God's word so well that even when he doesn't have it in front of him, he's meditating on it with his inner self. When he's laying in bed at night and it's dark, he's still being taught by God's word because he's thinking about God's word. He's still learning from it. He's applying it. So David blesses God for counseling him in the day. His inner man instructs him in the night. And then in verse 8, he says, Seek God continually. Seek God continually. Look at verse 8. I have set the Lord Yahweh, remember, continually before me. 
Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. By setting God continually before him, David is making God his goal. He's designating God as his pursuit in anything and everything in, in, in which he does. The word continually there is pretty simple. It just means always. So whether he ate or drank, whether he was fighting bears or foreign nations, whether he was tending to sheep or ruling from his palace, David had set God to be his goal in everything, always. And he ends the section with the second main statement of trust in the psalm. Remember, the first one was, I take refuge in you. This second statement of trust is, because he is at my right hand, I won't be shaken. I have a special connection with this particular verse because my oldest son, who's here with us today, Benjamin, is named Benjamin. And in Hebrew, that name means son of my right hand. Now, there's an earthly element to that. I want to have a close relationship to my son, Benjamin. I want him to find comfort and protection and friendship and discipline in me. But even more importantly, I want him to find comfort and protection and friendship and discipline in God. I want him to be the son of my right hand, but more importantly, I want him to be the son of God's right hand. And it's the the beautiful picture of a close relationship with God that only exists for those who trust in him, for believers. And the blessing for those people who have set God at their right hand is that they will have peace. They won't be shaken, he says. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Does that apply to you? Can you say with a clean conscience that you seek wisdom from God's word daily? Do you know it so well that even when you don't have it in front of you, you meditate on it and you're thinking about it and you're chewing on it and you're obeying it even though you don't have the words in front of you? Have you set God as your continual goal so that in whatever you do and whatever circumstances, your aim is to please and glorify him? If you have, if the answer is yes, David says, you have another reward which he describes in verses 9 through 11. Not only do you have a beautiful inheritance, but those who trust in God's counsel have a joyous expectation. Point four in your outline, a joyous expectation. And letter A is they have total joy. David says in verse 9, therefore, in other words, because of the great truth that I won't be shaken, therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. David here is talking about his whole self, his heart, his glory, his body. Every possible aspect of him is glad and rejoicing and experiencing peace because of his close relationship with God. But that's not the only reason why David is rejoicing here. Look at verse 10. He's rejoicing because those who trust in God have a resurrected Savior. Letter B in your outline. They have a resurrected Savior. He says in verse 10, My flesh will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now on the surface level, this applies to David and to all believers. David wrote this psalm 
with a present reality in mind. And this was a psalm that would have been sung by the nation of Israel. He was sure that when he died, God wouldn't just abandon him, right? God wouldn't leave his soul with his body forever buried in a tomb. David was sure of that. He had confidence in writing this that there's life after death for him. But that's only true because there's an even deeper and much more joyous reality going on here in the future for David. And for that, we're going to have to turn to Acts 2. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 2, verse 24. Psalm 16 is quoted a number of times in the New Testament, but Acts 2 is probably the uh, most helpful and explicit uh, quotation of Psalm 16. And this is, um, this is Peter. Peter is, is standing up and giving a sermon here in Acts 2. And he's, starting in verse 24, he begins to quote Psalm 16 and is going to explain it for us. So Acts 2, verse 24, Peter says, And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. This is talking about Jesus Christ. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power, in death's power. For David says of him, and this is where he quotes Psalm 16, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And he continues, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter makes it clear here in Acts 2 that Psalm 16 does and has always applied to Jesus. And what's his proof of that? What does he say in, in that last verse that we read? How do we know that it applies to Jesus? Because David died and was buried. David died. He was buried. Did David's body decompose? Yeah, unless... Unless he went through some mummification that we don't know about. David's body decomposed in a tomb. At best, it would be bones right now, if even that. <clears throat> David did die. His body did decay. But Jesus Christ's didn't. Did David know that it applied more fully to the coming Messiah? What do you guys think? Who, but show of hands, who thinks, yes, David knew? Two, all right, three, four. Who thinks, no, David didn't, oh, five. Who thinks, no, David didn't know? About the same number. Wow, we only have 10 people here today. That's crazy. I, I think he did. Some people think he did and some people think he did. Both are smarter than me, but let's look in, in Acts 2, verse 30. And so, because he was a prophet, remember, Peter's talking about David, because he, David, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. 
I think David knew that he was speaking of a, of a more beautiful reality uh, and, and prophesying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Students, that prophecy was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. David didn't li- live to see its fulfillment, but Peter did. And now we get to look back and know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. His soul wasn't abandoned to Sheol. His body didn't decay. And in fact, the body that his disciples saw after his resurrection was a glorified body that didn't decompose or decay and that he still has today. And David says that, that is the reason to rejoice. He has total joy in his whole being because he looked forward to a resurrected Savior and rejoiced in the fact that Christ's resurrection and glorification would secure his own resurrection and glorification. Last point in your outline. Those who trust in God have a confident hope. They have a confident hope. You can turn back to Psalm 16. Verse 11 of Psalm 16 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. David here is describing the blessed life for a believer in this world, as well as the eternal life that his Savior would secure for him when he died and rose again. In this life, true satisfaction, right, fullness of joy, pleasures forever, true satisfaction can only be experienced by those who trust in God, and it's only found in God's presence. Remember that that phrase, at your right hand. He says it again here, in your right hand, right? Before it was, God is at my right hand. Now he's saying, in your right hand, God, there are pleasures forever. So that satisfaction can only be found in God's presence. And that's in this life. In the life to come, after you die, those who have trusted in God will experience wonderful, glorious, joyful, awesome, eternal life with him. People have sometimes negative views of what heaven might be. David tells us all I need to know about heaven in verse 11. The path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forever. All right, close the book. I'm, I'm good. I don't need to know anything else, right? Everyone else who hasn't trusted in God will experience eternal punishment. The absence of joy the absence of pleasure, totally isolated from God's presence. Remember, fullness of joy and pleasures forever are in God's presence. Outside of God's presence, it's the opposite of those things. So I ask you now, do you have a joyous expectation? Does your whole being because of Christ's resurrection? Do you find satisfaction in God? or in worldly pursuits? Do you have a confident hope of eternal life, or are you kind of unsure of what's going to happen to you when you die? You think your parents are probably Christians, but you're not really sure about yourself. If so, you need to trust in God, because eternal life can only be found in him and in his son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, and his body did not decompose or decay. He has a glorified body and He's going to give every believer a glorified body. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness, that we can trust fully in your goodness and know that you are good and do good whether our life is easy or not, whether we go through difficult circumstances or not. Lord, we look forward to the reward that we have, the the inheritance that is you. We inherit you. No one else can say that but those who trust in you, Lord. And and we, we trust not only in your goodness but in your counsel. We pray that you would give us wisdom from your word and that we would be humble to receive that wisdom from your word and to chew on it and meditate on it all throughout the day. And Father, we, we look forward as believers to the day when uh, we will experience the resurrection and glorification that, that Jesus secured for us. We, we look forward to full joy and eternal pleasure with you in heaven. And we pray for those here now who don't know you, who don't trust in you, that you would change their hearts, that you would save them, and that you would enable them to, to look forward with joyous expectation to that day when they get to be with you in heaven as well. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.